Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And today we hear about the potential of lucid dreaming therapy to aid those struggling with post-traumatic stress. Our guest is Charlie Morley. Charlie is a lucid dreaming teacher and best-selling author who helps people wake up in their dreams and harness the power of sleep for psychological growth. Charlie formerly became a Buddhist at the age of 19 and has been lucid dreaming for over 20 years. In 2018, he was awarded a Winston Churchill Fellowship to research PTSD treatment in military veterans and continues to teach workshops for people with trauma-affected sleep. These teachings form the core of his latest book, Wake Up to Sleep. But before we hear from Charlie, I just wanted to mention how you can support our work. Mad in America is a non-profit, and we've been providing free-to-access content since 2012. You can help by donating to allow us to continue our mission to rethink psychiatry in the US and around the world. To help support our work, please visit madinamerica.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your support. And now on to the podcast. Charlie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Madden America podcast. I'm really uh, thrilled to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you. So we're here to talk about your work and in particular, the use of lucid dreaming as therapy. And later we'll get to talk um, a little bit about some really exciting research into using lucid dreaming for post-traumatic stress. But before we get to that, I'm sure that some listening will know what lucid dreaming is, but many won't. So you're a lucid dreaming teacher. So could you tell us what lucid dreaming is and maybe describe the experience a little bit for those that might not have experienced it for themselves? Sure. So my job is to teach people how to have lucid dreams. So the first thing is, what is a lucid dream? A lucid dream is any dream where you're actively aware of the fact that you're dreaming as the dream is happening. So you're still sound asleep, but in the dream you go, aha, this is all a dream. So anyone who's listening and thinks, oh yeah, I've had one of those where I was in the dream and then they suddenly realize, wow, I'm actually dreaming now. My body's asleep in bed. I'm inside my mind. I'm exploring this huge three-dimensional hallucination of my own psychology. Ah, this is a lucid dream. And for those who haven't had that experience, then I'd ask them to perhaps think of a nightmare where in the nightmare they've gone, I've got to wake up, I've got to wake up. If you've ever had that experience, that was actually a lucid dream too. Because the moment you acknowledged there was a place to wake up to, you had indirectly acknowledged you were dreaming. And of course, if anyone ever has had that experience or has that in the future, the first takeaway I'd like to offer is, if you can, don't wake up. So if you're in a nightmare and you realize it's a nightmare and you have that feeling, I've got to wake up, I've got to wake up, don't wake up. Every time you wake from a nightmare, necessarily, the nightmare has to recur because it's like a therapy session cut short. You know, in almost all cases, nightmares play a uh, healing role. And every time we wake ourselves from a nightmare, either intentionally or just because the nightmare is so scary, we kind of uh, get shocked out of it, the nightmare recurs. And this is why when people say, oh, no, why don't I have happy dreams that recur? Why doesn't that that dream where I had a dinner date with my favorite celebrity, why don't I have that once? Well, because that was integrated in the moment. That was a wonderful therapy session. You discussed your favorite celeb. You know, you loved that one. But the one where you replayed that trauma or the one where you had a future projection of some threat that may befall you in the future, you know, whether it's a future-based nightmare or a past trauma-based nightmare, 
every time we wake ourselves from one of them, they have to recur. Not because the brain hates us, but because it loves us. It makes me think of when I went to uh, Zoom therapy during lockdown. And there are a couple of times where my internet went down in the middle of a therapy session. And as soon as the internet went down, my therapist, because he loves me, started texting me, WhatsApping me, emailing me, not because he was, you know, trying to have a go at me, because he really wanted to get back online so we could finish this wonderful healing discussion we were having. That's how the nightmares are working. Uh, so anyway, I digress a little bit onto nightmares there, but essentially a lucid dream is any dream you've had where you know that you're dreaming as the dream is happening, but you, you're sound asleep. And then once you know it's a dream, you can choose what happens. So you don't just let the dream carry on. You go, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. So I can choose to do stuff. I can fly through the sky. I can meet my favorite movie stars. But once you're ready to put away kind of those things, you realize, well, hang on, if I'm conscious in my unconscious mind, then this is a similar state to hypnosis. Yes, it's like a very, very deep state of hypnosis. You know, you're right at the bottom of the iceberg in a lucid dream because you can't get more unconscious than asleep. So the elevator pitch is anything you can treat through hypnotherapy, you can also treat through lucid dreaming, whether it's working with confidence, whether it's working with PTSD, whether it's childhood trauma, whether it's training athletes to be better in their athletic discipline, there's a lot of research on that, um, or whether it's for spiritual practice. It's got a long history in Buddhism and Toltec shamanism and Sufism. Uh, so yeah, lucid dreaming is not, not a new thing at all. It's got good providence. There's a brilliant TED talk that you did a little while ago that talks about embracing the shadow. And you talk there of the innate healing potential that we all have but can't necessarily connect to. So is lucid dreaming a possible route to that healing potential? Yeah, exactly that. It's like, you know, again, to use that old kind of iceberg theory of consciousness, very outdated and simplistic, but quite good an image to use here. If we think about things like, um, you know, hypnotherapy, uh, maybe some forms of psychedelics, mindfulness practices, shamanic journey and yoga nidra, all of those take a strand of the conscious mind and just dip it down beneath the surface of the water into those upper echelons of, of, the, uh, of the iceberg. And those are brilliant modalities and way more accessible than lucid dreaming. However, in a lucid dream, you're taking that strand from the top of the iceberg, but dropping it right down to the bottom, right below the surface, simply because you can't get more unconscious than asleep. So although hypnotherapy might be engaged upon the first session, whereas lucid dreaming might take days, weeks, even months to have your first lucid dream. Once you get to that state, it seems to be very, a very profound depth in the unconscious, which you can access through lucid dreaming. Uh, and so, Charlie, you know, obviously one of the many things that you do, apart from writing and, and speaking and all the rest of it, you're a lucid dreaming teacher. So, you know, if people listening were interested in learning more about how to lucid dream you know, are there some things that they can start to do at home simple things that might help them along that journey yeah so of course it's a big subject and there's books and courses on it and stuff like that but yeah for podcasts i always like to offer the four d's which are kind of four steps people can take today to get them on the path to lucid dreaming and the first d is dream planning so decide what you want to do in your first or next lucid dream now, some people hear this and think, wait, how is that the first technique? Surely you should teach me how to lucid dream first. This is the technique. The why is more important than the how. If you can fall asleep tonight after listening to this and think, wow, imagine if 
through lucid dreaming, I could meet my inner child and transform childhood trauma. Imagine if through lucid dreaming, I could ask profound questions to my unconscious mind or very practical questions like what career path should I take and receive an answer in symbolic form. Imagine if I could use lucid dreaming to, uh, to work with that phobia that's been plaguing me all my life in the same way as we could use exposure therapy. I could use that in the lucid dream too, uh, to possibly even greater effect. If you can fall asleep with a good why, that's way more important than all the hows. So the first thing I'd say is think, what do you want to do through lucid dreaming? And that question would be a similar, uh, a similar question to ask would be, you know, if you had, um, uh, a session with the world's greatest hypnotherapist, and we've all got our, our favorites, but whoever is your, your most powerful, my favorite hypnotherapist, and you want a free session with them today, what would you like to work on? That's basically what you're asking yourself. You know, if I have access to my unconscious mind and I could do anything, I could heal anything, I could explore any part of it, what would I choose to do? And the answer to that question becomes your dream plan. And in the study that we'll talk about later, everybody had the same dream plan. It wasn't to meet their favorite movie star. It wasn't to work on their athletic discipline. It wasn't to ask what career path should I take. It was to intentionally face and transform a trauma or wounded part of their psyche. So that's the first thing, dream planning. Second D is dream recall. We need to train ourselves to remember our dreams. Uh, some people say, oh, well, yeah, because otherwise I could be lucid dreaming every night, but I don't remember it. Mm, maybe, but probably if you're lucid dreaming, you're going to remember it because for most people, they're kind of peak experiences that imprint themselves in the memory quite powerfully. Um, a lucid dream, pretty much all the lucid dreaming techniques are based on knowing the lucid dream environment so well that you recognize it when you're in it. So the first thing we need to do is start remembering our dreams. So as you fall asleep tonight, or well, before you fall asleep, the first thing we need to do is remove the barrier to entry. The big barrier to entry for dream recall for many people is this belief that some people don't dream. That is an urban myth. It's not, well, not even an urban myth. It's just not true. It's factually incorrect. Everybody dreams every night. Uh, if, if you, if you sleep, obviously you stay awake all night, you're not going to dream. But if you sleep, you dream. And unless you've had a heavy head injury or a stroke or some sort of traumatic brain injury, uh, you'll be dreaming every night. And even if you have had those conditions, within a few weeks, actually, the brain will rewire itself to allow dreaming to occur because dreaming is so important for our survival. You know, without dreaming, we wouldn't be able to uh, integrate our wounds and we wouldn't be able to remember new information. You know, as the great sleep scientist, Professor Matthew Walker said, we dream to remember and we dream to forget. Uh, I like to say we dream to remember, we dream to forget and we, <laughs> and we dream to heal. You know, this is this is the, the point of dreaming. So first thing, train yourself to remember your dreams. How? Fall asleep tonight, reciting over and over in your mind as you pass through the hypnagogic state, that drowsy state as you fall asleep. Tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream recall. Tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream recall. If you do that as you're falling asleep, it's basically a self-hypnosis technique to help you remember your dreams. So that's the second D. And the third D is dream diaries. Once you remember your dream, don't forget to write it down. The act of writing down helps us uh, remember things, as we all know, and we're revising for exams and stuff like that. Also, the act of writing down your dreams pays homage to them. It tells the mind, like, this is something important to me, an area of my life that I used to ignore. Now I'm bothering to write down into my phone or a notebook in the morning. And also, by writing down our dreams, uh, we start to find patterns that occur in our dreams. And that leads us to our fourth and final D, which is dream signs. 
So a dream sign is any part of the dream that could indicate to you that you are in fact dreaming. So most dreams are full of dream signs. You know, talking animals, dead relatives, being in countries you don't actually live, being friends with movie stars, you know, anything that doesn't happen in your everyday life but only happens in dreams, that's a dream sign. And by writing down your dreams, you start to note. Let's say you write down your dreams for a week. And by the end of the week, you start to note, oh, look, I, I dreamt of zombies twice last week. Oh, God, I always dream about my dead grandma. Or often it's, ah, oh, at least twice a week, I dream of my childhood home, something like that. Once you start to see those patterns emerging in your dream signs, you can then, you're then on the path to lucidity because you can say, okay, well, before sleep, you go, well, if between now and breakfast, I see my dead grandma, I must be dreaming. Or if between now and breakfast, I'm back in my child at home, I must be dreaming. So you create these lucidity triggers using the perspective part of the memory. The same part, perspective memory part of the brain, in fact, is really well wired. You know, and you owe someone a tenner. And you God, next time I, next time I see a cash bond, I've got to remember to get a tenner because I owe my mate a tenner or something. Then you can totally forget about that. But the next time you see a cash point, something's triggered. You know, it's stored. The goal-orientated part of the brain will keep that flashing light on until you see a cash point. So you can do the same thing with your dream signs. You know, the next time I see a zombie or the next time I see my dead grandmother, I know that I'm dreaming. And those triggers will go off. And exactly the same way as when you walk past the cash point and you go, ah, I owe James a tenner. I must remember to get some money. You'll be in the dream completely unaware that you're dreaming. And then suddenly you have this, ah, whoa, I'm dreaming. It's like you've seen the cash point in the dream. And it's so cool when that happens. In fact, most people wake up from the excitement. Uh, so my job is to kind of keep people calm when that first happens. Anyway, those are the four Ds. That'll get people started tonight. Thank you, Charlie. That, that, the dream diary particularly strikes me as really important because I, I'm sure that, you know, again, people listening will have that experience of, uh, you know, coming around and, and having a dream and remembering it. But the, re the, the remembering it only lasts a very short time before it starts to evaporate, doesn't it? Yeah, you've got you've to gotta try and get there before it evaporates. It's like catching a feather. You know, the feather of the memory is falling. And if you grasp at it, the action of grasping pushes the feather further away from you. So you need to kind of see the feather falling and then just have an upturned hand and just allow the memory to be caught by your mindful awareness in the morning. Uh, but it's a muscle. It can be trained. We'll get better and better with time. And Charlie, is there any kind of sense of, you know, what proportion of people kind of spontaneously lucid dream without any effort compared to perhaps, you know, the amount of people who kind of need some help or need some direction to start doing it? Is it common? I think it's about like 52%, well, about, I know exactly what it is. It is exactly 52% of people surveyed in America, at least, uh, reported having at least one lucid dream in their lifetime. Um, now, interestingly, two, two Harvard studies showed that children naturally lucid dream. Not every child, every single night, but they concluded that lucid dreaming is a natural arising, is a, is a spontaneous natural arising of childhood brain development. So it seems like actually lucid dreaming comes factory installed. You know, it's not something we need to kind of learn how to do. It's something we need to remember. Yeah, I, I, I so recognize that. I've got a 13 year old daughter and she takes great delight in describing to me almost every morning when I see her first thing in the morning about the dream she's had. And she can describe it in absolutely perfect, minute detail. And she'll ask me, what did you dream about? And I can't really remember, but her recollection is incredible. And she's got a bit of a leg up because 13 years old, she's pretty much got the longest REM periods, rapid eye movement dreaming period she's ever going to have. Adolescence is when you have the most dreaming time, which is why it's so important to let her sleep in if you can. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, if it's okay, I, I'd like to kind of come on to talk about a recent peer-reviewed study that, that you facilitated. And I, it's fascinating to read. So it was undertaken by the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California. And it was reported in the journal Traumatology in June 2023. And it's entitled Decreased Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Symptoms Following a Lucid Dream Healing Workshop. So um if it's all right, before we come on to talk about the results, which are pretty amazing in themselves, could you tell us a little bit about the study? So how was it undertaken and what was the study looking for? Okay, so there have been literally dozens of studies over the past 20 years that have shown that lucid dreaming is one of the most powerful treatments for nightmares, um, which are, of course, a hallmark of post-traumatic stress disorder. What there hadn't been so far was a study looking at could lucid dreaming treat not only nightmares, but could it treat post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms uh, in general? So what we were doing was uh, we recruited 55 people. We had 150, 144 people apply, 55 made it through um, because there were certain criteria that people had to have chronic PTSD. Uh, they couldn't just have like a a kind of a low PTSD score. I know this sounds very arbitrary, but there's a PTSD score. Kind of, we use the checklist from the DSM-5 that has the uh, uh, the long series of questions that uh, the self-report from the DSM-5. Um, so we needed people to have chronic PTSD. Most of them, or many of them, had treatment resistance. So they had to kind of be in treatment for PTSD, but, you know, they, they were still suffering. Um, and at the beginning of the study, we took people's PTSD score. So they took the PTSD uh, scale, and they also took the nightmare experience scale. So you want to see basically how, how severe are your nightmares and how severe are your PTSD symptoms. Uh, and the average score was way above the PTSD threshold. So as a group, the average was pretty high. You know, this was a highly traumatized group. We then had six days of online training. So this was me teaching two full days of online workshops. So a bit like the four Ds that I just mentioned there, but going to much more detail, guided meditations, nap practices, uh, yoga nidra, which is a form of conscious sleeping, uh, daytime awareness practices, um, videos that people could play in the middle of the night of me kind of encourage, uh, uh, guiding them through the next techniques. So because originally the study was going to be an in-person retreat, but then COVID happened. So I needed to try and create as close to an in-person retreat as possible. And one of the main things in the in-person retreat is multiple wake-ups. So these are optional. But if you fall asleep and you sleep all through the night, essentially you've got one chance to fall asleep doing the self-hypnosis technique, one chance to recognize your dreams. If you can wake people up at multiple times, junctures in the second half of the night, once they've got all their deep healing deep sleep under their belt. You don't want to mess with that. But in the early hours when they're in these long REM periods, um, then you've got multiple chances for people to drop in doing the doing the, the techniques. And actually a group of people with, you know, 100% uh, PTSD in the group, uh, none, very few of them slept through the night anyway. So they say, oh, I do this anyway. I wake up three or four times a night. So this is actually perfect. There was kind of a sense of empowerment where I went, oh, well, your sleep cycle is great for this study. However, before the study began, literally the night before the study began, actually, one of the funders, this wonderful guy, Constantine Kuss, uh, who was one of the major funders for this, he WhatsApped me and went, how many lucid dreams do you think we're going to have in the one-week study? And I had to be honest with him. I went, mate, maybe none. 
Like, I mean, I've worked with veterans groups and uh, British military groups for the past seven years where a group might have up to maybe 50% of the group, a kind of card carrying, uh, you know, PTSD survivors or, or sufferers or whatever they, they uh, choose to label themselves as, if, if anything. Um, but I've never worked with a group where 100% have PTSD. So maybe we're going to spend the, the the week just doing sleep hygiene techniques, just helping them get to sleep. I don't know whether we'll have any lucid dreams. In fact, we had a very high level of lucid dreaming. We had 75% of them had at least one or more lucid dreams in the six-day study. Um, now, when I do the four-day intensive retreats in person, uh, we would struggle to get up to that. I mean, maybe we'd be around 70% of people would have a lucid dream, uh, but a lot of people would tend to have their lucid dreams when they leave the retreat. A bit like, you know, your muscles don't grow in the gym. They have four days of training and then a little bit frustrating. It's when they go home, suddenly all the emails come in, oh, I had my first lucid dream. But it turned out we had a very high level of lucidity. And I think this is because, you know, 55 people uh, some of whom were veterans, some of whom were childhood sexual abuse survivors, uh, two-thirds were women. Uh, mo I'm just looking at my details here. Uh, most were either from the UK, US, or there were a few from Australia and Europe as well. Everyone was in different boats. You know, we're never in the same boat. When people say we're in the same boat, I think, no, we're not. Like, look at the patriarchy and this racist society we live in and ageism, sexism. We're not in the same boat. But we're in the same storm, if you know trauma. People know that storm. The storm seems to have similar weather conditions, whether you're a veteran, whether you're a civilian, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're anything, uh, any person. So I think some magic was created in the group because everybody knew the same storm uh, because we had a very high level of lucidity. Not only a high level of lucidity, but a high level of what we were going for, which was a healing lucid dream. So I was teaching people to lucid dream, uh, but then out of all the dream plans they could have chosen, they all had the same dream plan, which was to face and embrace or uh, face and embrace trauma or explore and send love to a wounded part of their psyche. How did this look like? Well, a lot of the people there were working with uh, were survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And there's one theory that goes when you become lucid, you would call out to meet the trauma. You know, the, the trauma wants to be witnessed. And the fact we have never witnessed it in the safe space of our own minds is why the trauma is still there. So there's one theory that you should become lucid and call out childhood trauma, come to me. Uh, I felt and had seen in, in previous research working with trauma survivors that that is way too confrontational. When we tried that before, we were getting people in the dream suddenly um, like neon flashing signs would appear in the dream, in the lucid dream saying access denied, access denied. I mean, what an amazing, not even symbolic, what an amazing sign from the dream saying, nah, you're not going there. You know, this is this. It, it's very hard to do damage to yourself in a lucid dream. A bit like if you put your hand into fire, it instantly gets pulled out. If you're in a lucid dream and you go too far, boom, you just wake up. There's an ejector seat button in the lucid dream and it will wake you up if it gets too much. But what we realized was if you could meet the internal archetype that was wounded by the childhood sexual abuse that you survived, that would be a way in. So most people uh, who are working with childhood sexual abuse made a dream plan to meet their inner child and they became lucid and they would call out if they're in a child. And I mean, were, the cases varied, but in some of the, one of the dream reports, uh, a woman did this and there was a little girl who was just crying with her back to her. And she realized like, whoa, so this must be my inner child. This is like a symbolic representation of my childhood. And she thought, well, what do I do? And we said, you know, whatever happens, hug, show love. 
whether that's literally a hug, whether that's saying loving things, whether that's sending mantras. Some people into Buddhism, they want to send mantras, whatever it was. Uh, and in this case, the woman just said, I love you. It's not your fault. And then the girl turned around and she embraced the little girl. And she said, as she embraced the little girl, the girl kind of dissolved into light. And then the whole dream dissolved into light and she woke up. <laughs> and it was a very powerful experience. Um, and she was one of the people uh, who, one of the 85% of people uh, in that study who, by the end of the week, when we checked their PTSD score again, the score was so low, it had fallen beneath the PTSD threshold. Uh, so they were actually no longer classified as having post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and 85% of participants had a similar experience. Um, now, when we crunched the, well, when the scientists crunched the data on that, it was such an audacious result that they thought there was a problem with data collection. They literally couldn't believe it. They said, this is literally incredible. Um, so they double checked and they said, okay, we still got a problem with data. We're going to triple check. The triple check came back and they said, okay, this data is correct. Uh, we have X amount of people who the PTSD score is so low that they just don't, they're not classified as having PTSD anymore. Um, but could it be just some sort of flash in the pan? Could it be the group energy you've been talking about, Charlie? We're all in the same storm. Uh, we need to do a follow-up. So one month later, everyone took the same tests again, the same nightmare experience scale and the same DSM-5 self-report PTSD score uh, 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 questionnaire. And not only had it stayed that low for those 85% of people, it actually dropped one point below. So it seemed to be getting better with time, not getting worse. Uh, so that was when we knew we had something to publish. Um, but actually, we, we struggled to get it published. And I mean, this is something I've heard people in scientific studies say before in, in movies and stuff. And you say, oh, come on, it's not, you know, there's no conspiracy to not publish, is there? And you realize, no, it's not a conspiracy. But I think when you get audacious results, uh, the editor of the journal put their neck on the line. Because what if you haven't collected the data correctly? What if there is a problem with it? It's them on the line. So uh, we got turned down for publication by a few places. However, um, once the funders and the scientific organization we did it with saw the results, they were so impressed, they funded us to do a 100-person randomized control trial, which we then completed, we completed a few months ago. Suddenly, once we completed that, the journals that turned us down before were suddenly very open to publishing. So I think they just wanted to see, you know, are you going to do this again uh, with a randomized control? Can you pull it off again? Now, we haven't actually crunched the data on the randomized control, uh, but the scientists say uh, the results are promising. So we believe we've got a similar uh, similar result again, although those results are, haven't been finalized yet. Um, so, yeah, then it got published in the Journal of Traumatology. I'm so pleased that you did find somewhere to get this published and you know i've heard from others that you know uh, treatments that are not seen as mainstream really do struggle you know if they're slightly left left field if they're slightly yeah. different to what's gone before then they do struggle to make an impact and journals of course you know as you say do treat them with with caution but i'm so glad you got this published and the results are, are, are absolutely staggering i mean firstly the number of participants that had lucid dreams during the workshop 76 percent is, is really incredible and what, what one thing I was interested in, Charlie, was obviously you know as you mentioned before, one of the one of the standout kind of issues for people who have had a stressful experience and had some post traumatic stress reaction to it is nightmares. And you know to the extent that I've heard people say that you know they're frightened to go to sleep at night because they're plagued by nightmares. So you know how did people react when you said, well, you know part of the therapy is engaging with your nightmares maybe in a different way or becoming aware of your nightmares. You know how how did they respond to that? 
almost entirely positively. Because I think when you've been experiencing a symptom profile such as nightmares that is so deeply pathologized by both the medical system and society. I mean, look at the way we use the word nightmare. If I've had a bad journey to come and visit you, oh, it was a bloody nightmare. You know, I mean, these, it's a small thing, but, you know, we, nightmare is basically a negative thing, right? And if you have nightmares, there's something wrong with you. Um, this is just not the case anymore. You know, we've got study after study. I mean, it's a great study they did at Rush University in Chicago that showed a direct correlation between people who were having nightmares about the traumatic event that happened to them and how quickly they recovered from the trauma-induced depression that followed. Direct correlation. Um, people, it wasn't you had to have nightmares to heal, because of course nightmares is one of the ways uh, that we can heal, but those who were having nightmares healed quicker. And that's been reported again and again and again. So this isn't like, a, this isn't conjecture. You know, we know this, uh, that nightmares in almost all cases are playing uh, a, uh, a curative role. And it's a bitter medicine, but it is medicinal. You know, there is there is a medicine there. And I think just presenting people with that shift of perspective and then backing it up with all the science, um, you, you, you kind of see this collective sigh of relief in the room as they're like, oh, okay. And then you tell them stories about, I mean, these are, these are more rare, but these are true. I've heard this on two occasions. Clinical psychologists who said they're more worried in some cases when a client is presenting without nightmares after a deeply traumatic experience than when they present with. Because when they present with, at least it shows that inherent healing mechanism of the dreaming mind is being engaged. Whereas when it's not, it could be that the person is so deep into repression and denial um, and of course, repression simply being a safety mechanism from the mind saying, we cannot go there. That is just too much to even relive that in a nightmare. Um, that in, in many cases, when they're having nightmares, at least you know something's, uh, uh, the healing is, is beginning. I um, mean, my, uh, Buddhist meditation teacher, he got diagnosed with PTSD almost 40 years after the, uh, war zone trauma that led to it. And it's when he retired, in fact, you know, he was a really kind of well-known meditation teacher and was just, you know, kind of a, uh, living, you know, on the road, uh, just teaching retreats constantly for 30 years. And then when he retired and there was kind of space for his psyche to, to, to kind of go through the files and look what had always been there, he started having these terrible nightmares uh, and then got diagnosed with PTSD almost 40 years later. And again, he was a perfect example of someone who went, actually, in this case, the nightmares are a good sign. It's shown that after 40 years of holding this stuff, repressing it beneath the surface, now you've got the time and space in your retirement to, to kind of release the pressure valve uh, and let it out. And I remember him always saying, thank God now and not death. And I was like, whoa, what a profound statement that he knew that that stuff was still in him, that trauma. And he's an old guy, you know, he's in his 80s now. And he went, well, thank goodness it came out in that, you know, PTSD period rather than at death because he would have to face it at some time. Um, so anyway, in answer to your question, yes, almost all people react very positively to that, I think, because it's such a new perspective uh, and there's so much science on it. And they find often people find their nightmare that if you the kind of scale, if you use the nightmare experience, here, it starts to drop straight away after they've simply heard the reframing of nightmares. It's such a powerful reframing that people's frequency of nightmares either stop or the frequency increases, but perceived level of distress from the nightmares drops right off the scale. Because they're like, oh yeah, I had a nightmare, but I got this new perspective that actually it's not so bad. It doesn't mean I'm unspiritual. It doesn't mean I'm broken. It shows, yeah, you know, I'm healing. You know, you cut your arm, a scab appears. 
and the scabs kind of can be a bit disgusting and can be itchy and we can be ashamed of the scab, but thank goodness for scabs. You know, if there wasn't the scabbing mechanism within our body, uh, you know, we'd get gangrene every time we, we scratched ourselves on a, on a rose bush. So this kind of mechanism of the mind that heals itself is a good thing. And I think to offer people that reframe is deeply empowering. Thank you, Charlie. And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I, I like the thought of this as a, as a therapy rather than, you know, perhaps intensive psychotherapy or, or, or perhaps drug treatment or whatever, because, you know, I, I, I guess it's kind of, from what I understand, there are other benefits to doing lucid dreaming. So, you know, it's helpful for insomnia, it's helpful for daytime focus, you know, and many other things too. So I'm guessing the participants, as well as addressing their traumatic experiences, were probably also finding improvements elsewhere in their lives. Yeah, everything you just said. And also, they started having fun. They started having fun. This part of their life, that third of their life where they're usually asleep, which they'd usually associated with trauma and nightmares and insomnia. Suddenly, the insomnia, or, or well, insomnia, waking multiple times in the night could suddenly be used on the lucid dreaming path. Having nightmares meant it was easier to get lucid. Over a third of all spontaneous lucid dreams begin as nightmares because, of course, fear boosts our awareness. So basically, scary dreams are easier to get lucid in. Um, and then there's this reframe that your nightmares are actually okay. So rather than dreading the night, and for someone who's had post-traumatic stress uh, nightmares himself uh, as, at a younger age, that, oh, that feeling. I'm, you know, I remember eating coffee from a spoon. I was so young, I hadn't, my taste buds didn't really like coffee yet. So I was eating Nescafe from a spoon just to stay awake because I dreaded the nightmares so much. So I really know that suffering, that horrible suffering. And to be able to flip that and actually look forward to the nighttime because now I have tools. And now the condition I'm in, someone who waits multiple times in the night, struggles to sleep and has nightmares are actually perfect for this thing called lucid dreaming. It's like, wow. I was I was born for this. Like this is this is this is okay. This is part of my journey. It can actually be incorporated into the kind of the biography of the person um, and reframed as something really powerful rather than disempowering. And so, Charlie, you know, you mentioned that you've done a follow up study, and you know, I guess that's going to take a little while before it kind of uh, appears in print. But what else would you like to see happen in terms of investigating this kind of work to help people that have had such difficult experiences? I mean, the, the end goal is I would love this to be offered in the same way as, you know, mindfulness meditation 20 years ago was only done by people, you know, who are into yoga and Buddhist and hippies and all this kind of stuff, all of which I am, which I'm using these jokey terms, um, and is now offered in the NHS or can be, you know, offered from uh, NHS um, uh, provider is revolutionary. And my hope is that one day the same will be with lucid dreaming. It is non-invasive, it's non-addictive, it's non-medical, it's free, and you do it in your bloody sleep. I mean, that sounds too good to be true. It's not. It is true. It takes some effort, and you need to learn how to do it, and these people gave up six days of their life. But they gave up six days of their life to learn a technique which, for some of them, profoundly shifted their lives for the rest of it. Um, so, yes, I would like to see this at some point offered in, you know, mainstream uh, medical health settings. Uh, and one thing that came up from the study, it's worth saying, the reason I never used to say that was because for many people, lucid dreaming takes a certain amount of effort and not everybody seems to be able to do it that easily. Um, 
what we found in the study was even those 25% of people who did not have a lucid dream in the six-day study, many of them also were part of the 85% whose PTSD score dropped off the scale. Why? Because it seems like just learning to lucid dream, even before you have that first breakthrough experience, just learning, just having that complete reframe of the night that I just spoke about before is such an empowering uh, counterweight to the disempowering energy, the post-traumatic stress uh, display I like to use. I don't believe it's a disorder that post-traumatic stress display gives people, um, leads to a deep healing. So, I mean, that was amazing. The scientists weren't so keen on that data point because it kind of messes up the rest of the data. Oh, it would, it would be better if only the people who lucid dreamt kind of had uh, a decrease in symptoms and everyone else stayed the same. We actually found, no, even the people who just tried to lucid dream had a decrease in PTSD symptoms. So I think that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it speaks to what you were talking earlier about reframing the experience. You know, perhaps they're not nightmares. Perhaps they are paths to healing. And, you know, you talked about embracing the shadow. You know, when, yes. when you've seen your talk and when you've read the paper, suddenly you it makes complete sense that the route to healing is by not exactly facing your fears, but viewing your fears in a different way and interacting with them through the lucid dreaming process. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, I, I mean, the, the paper's staggering to read, and we'll put a link to it, obviously, in the write-up on, on Madden America. And I think people will be fascinated in this, and I, I was fascinated in it too. Is there anything that we didn't cover, Charlie, that you think people listening should know, either about you as a, as a lucid dreaming teacher or about lucid dreaming as a process or perhaps what the future might hold? No, I think just to encourage people to, to learn how to do it. This is something that kids know how to do naturally. So even if you don't remember having a lucid dream, your inner child does, which is why I think lucid dreaming has such a kind of a fun element to it, because it maybe kind of rekindles this kind of childhood thing of, ah, dreams are fun. You know, what will I dream about tonight? Um, so learn how to do it. You know, there are books, there are websites, there are online courses. There's loads of stuff for free. I've got loads of stuff on, on YouTube. Uh, this is open source. Uh, you do it in your sleep. You know, people who are working two jobs and, and trying to provide for several kids and stuff, you think, oh, wow. When will I find time for spiritual practice? When will I find time for, for healing? When will I find the free money for therapy? And lucid dreaming isn't affected by any of those. You know, you do it in your sleep. Even if you've got kind of what would be considered quite broken sleep can be great for lucid dreaming too. Uh, obviously, the more we sleep, the more dreams we have. But even if you do have broken sleep, that can be good for it. Um, give it a shot. You know, this is a very powerful modality that is there. And it's free, non-invasive, non-medical, non-addictive. The worst that can happen is nothing. The best that can happen is you completely transform your life while you sleep. So that's worth a shot. Charlie, it's been so fascinating to get to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me. And, you know, I'd really like to see more studies on this, uh, you know, as they come out. And I, I'd like to kind of uh, follow where it's going. I think it's fascinating. Ah, oh, thank you so much. And yeah, I'll let you know when we get the uh, data back from the 100-person trial. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you. Well, I just want to thank Charlie so much for taking the time to chat. To find out more about his work, you can visit the website charliemorley.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-I-E-M-O-R-L-E-Y.com, where you will find resources on lucid dreaming as therapy and a link to the paper that we discussed in this interview. So as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.